this particular portion of C.S. Lewis's book was clearly very important to him. Um, in The Great Divorce, Lewis is observing all these things happen personally. He's there, he's watching it go down. And kind of like Dante's Divine Comedy, he has a guide to heaven to help him understand these things. And instead of being Virgil like it is in Dante's case, it's George MacDonald who was a Scottish writer who predated C.S. Lewis and was profound in his influence on Lewis's life. And Lewis actually refuses to tell this story. He, he, he says, if I go back and I talk about this woman and her child, they'll think that, you know, I'm cruel and that I'm awful. And he says, do you really expect me to go to a grieving parent and deliver this message? And George MacDonald says, by no means. You don't have the right or the wherewithal to do that. And he says, until, until you've tasted this pain, you shouldn't, you shouldn't share it with anyone. And it's strangely prophetic. Because this theme of loss in relationship to love became a primary theme of Lewis's life, and it culminated in the loss of his own wife. And when his wife died, he wrote um, one of his most interesting books. He didn't write it to be published. It's just his journal entries about his grieving experience um, after losing his wife. A woman who he married to get her green card, the equivalent of a green card in Britain, and then fell head over heels in love with and then married for real. And then a year and a half later, she died of cancer. Um, and a grief observe is a hard work to read because he really wrestles, but he wrestles with just these things. I know it's important to Lewis even back before these things happen because after refusing to publish this, he refers back to this character at a later point in the story. He can't stop thinking about it. It's also an important character for me. Um, I'd read this book many times as a young kid in high school, before I was a Christian and after. Um, but a few years ago, when I saw this performed on the stage as a play, this character hit me so hard. And I realized that, uh, I mean, basically, the reason we're doing this project today, the, the thing that got us here was that revelation of how much power and provocativeness there was to this one concept. And I think you'll recognize with me after watching it, you feel stuck. You feel stuck because you resonate so deeply with the mother. And then on the other hand, you can also clearly see where her love has gone sideways. You can see the places where it's not what she thinks it is, where she's become blind, whereas in Reginald's terms, it becomes too fierce. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges to human character and the idea of the goodness of man to recognize that we can take probably one of the great highlights of human existence, relational love, and still, still see it twist into something hard and awful and monstrous. And so as we've been doing week to week, I want to look at one of the sayings of Jesus that we call the hard sayings of Jesus, the things that he said that have to be chewed on, have to be thought through, and eventually have to be faced. And tonight, maybe more than any other night, is one that's, even in this context, with the film coupled alongside it, a little hard to face. And so if you would tonight, and you have a Bible, please open up to Luke 14. If you'd like to use a Bible, there's one nearby you, um, stuck in the back of a pew. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. There's an index right in the front that will help you find it, and we'll be in chapter, 20, or, uh, chapter 14. Excuse me. 
We're merely going to look at a single verse tonight, um, but I want to add one, the one previous to give us a little bit of context to get us rolling. And so we're looking at uh, Luke 24, and I'd just like to read verses 25 and 26, and then we'll pray. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. If we're honest, Lord, our, our uh, usual way is to balk at hard things, to explain them away, to excuse them, to use them as an excuse, to no longer push in that direction. We tend to follow the path of least resistance. And, and here you set up uh, a major requirement. You draw an extreme line in the sand and you speak very strongly. And it almost, it almost seems out of character. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to get to the understanding on the other side of confusion, that we would see the gentleness on the other side of harshness, and that we would see really the, the good news on the other side of this bad news. And I ask that you would help us to do so by your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, I want to begin with the context tonight. So look again at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now, just think about what Luke is trying to tell us. Before Jesus opens his mouth, he tells us that this is an, an, in a season, in a time, when many are coming and walking with and following Jesus. Why are they there? They're there because they're attracted to Jesus and his ministry. They're there because they've witnessed him do miraculous things. They know people who have been touched by him. Their lives have been changed. Maybe they're even coming because they have self-same needs and they want to seek his help. There are many at this point that are starting to wonder if Jesus is the one who was promised, who are saying, has anyone ever spoken like this man? Who are just trying to process who this person could be and who important he is. And as you can imagine, many of them are considering being his followers, being his disciples, wondering if they need to really press into this new revolutionary movement that's come out of the backwoods of Galilee, a little, uh, you know, a little area in the nation of Israel, wondering if they should take part. And when we read it, notice what it says. It says, he turned and said to them. It's like they're walking along and he just stops in his tracks and he turns around. And my question to you would be, before we read the next verse, what would you expect to come out of Jesus' mouth? What would you anticipate him to say here? And the reality is, for, for many of us, we're so familiar with Jesus meek and mild, and we can think of so many other times that he addresses the crowds and says something profound, something tremendously gracious. He says something that's, that's an amazing invitation that sounds like no other invitation. And this I wouldn't say it's unique. In fact, um, by the time we roll into verse 27, we start to stumble into some of the other hard sayings of Jesus. He had a tendency to couple these together, and so we encounter them in different places. But the reality is, 
it can be hard to swallow this sentence from Jesus' mouth if you have only done a cursory view of who Jesus is or if you've limited the view of Jesus down to what's acceptable to you. It's striking, it's even shocking, is it not, that at this time, when the people are interested, at this time, when the crowds are massive, at this time, when everybody wants to follow Jesus, that he would say something that's so stark, so surprising. Spurgeon, who's great at uh, a good turn of phrase, his only way to address what happens here is, is that Jesus spoke badly, but intentionally badly. Like he's trying to get your attention by saying something offensive. Now, I think we'll see tonight that there's context that we need to understand here, but it's not going to remove the difficulty of this. It'll be helpful for us to understand and explain and rightly hear this the same way Jesus' audience would have done in that day, but you can't just explain away. You can't just remove. You can't just uproot this reality. And so that's what I'd like to do first. Let's read it again in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want you to notice two words there before we press in, anyone and cannot, okay? He goes very broad and then he goes extremely narrow, okay? He scoops up all possibilities and then he puts the same barrier in front of them all and none that's how he says this if anyone would then they cannot come to me unless and the unless here the verb the action item the to-do list piece the piece that he lays in front of them the line he draws is summed up in the word hatred and hatred of those who are closest to you your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings. Now here's where I said clarification is necessary. Because for us, hatred implies poor treatment. It implies negative behavior. It implies um, an attack, hostility, these types of things. Now, the Hebrew understanding, the Semitic way of thinking about this can include that, and you will find it in scriptures. But oftentimes, oftentimes when love is contrasted with hate, that's not exactly what is being expressed. So for example, the minor prophet Micah, speaking for God, says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And to be clear there, he's not talking about Jacob the person and Esau the person. He's talking about the nation that descended from Jacob, Israel, and the nation that descended from Esau, Edom. Okay? He's talking about their descendants. He's not looking at a moment in time or even a single life. He's looking at national destiny. And when he says this, it's relatively clear from the context and even from looking at the history of Israel that he's not completely, firmly, totally, and utterly set against Edom trying to make their life a living hell where he really enjoys, appreciates, and blesses Israel. It's not that simple. The idea instead is I've given to one group my covenantal blessings. I've given to one group my promises. I've devoted myself to one group and made them my people. And so comparatively... I've hated Edom, okay? Now, this is actually somewhat easy to see even in the fact that Micah chooses to express these two nations in their founding fathers, in Jacob and in Esau. 
Because the reality is Esau is the older brother of a set of twins, and as the older brother in a Jewish family, he's supposed to get everything. He's supposed to get two-thirds of the inheritance. He's supposed to get the blessing. He's supposed to be the patriarch and the priest of his family. And God sovereignly says, actually, I'm going to fulfill my plans through Jacob. Actually, Jacob is going to be the one who receives the promises I gave to his father, Isaac, and carries them on through his lineage. And to, um, to make another point, this is not because Jacob is up to the task. It's not because Jacob is a better person. It's not because Jacob has earned the right. In fact, when you're reading the story, if you read it with a fresh lens and you lose the fact that Jacob is a Bible character, and so we tend to think of that inherently as a hero, uh, you start to realize it's, it's kind of a strange choice. Jacob is not, t- not merely a total mess. He's kind of a jerk. He's deceptive. He takes advantage of circumstances. He's manipulative. I've heard pastors compare him to a used car salesman. He's shady. And before any of this is really played out, God says, this is the way I'm going. This is what I'm doing. Okay? So the contrast there is not between you're an awful person and I hate you, you're a great person and I love you. It's that contrast that is binary that says I've chosen this and therefore have not chosen this. Okay? I'll give you another example and this one applies to Jacob's own life. Later on in the same story in the book of Genesis it says God had or God showed favor on Leah because she was unloved and gave her a child. Okay, now, Jacob went on to marry two women, Rachel, and through a deception and a conniving in, uh, interaction with his father-in-law, also married his younger sister, Leah. He, he literally just slipped her into the wedding gown, put her under the veil, and, and he woke up the next morning. The wedding's been consummated, and it's not the bride he expected. Okay? So he ends up having two wives. And what's, what's being recognized in that story is that there's some favoritism going on. But when it says unloved there, it actually says hated. It says, now God had favor on Leah because she was hated. But if you read the story, it's clear that Jacob wasn't abusing Leah, that he wasn't despising her. Uh, In fact, as a side note, when Jacob finally chooses a place to be buried, he says, bury me next to Leah, not Rachel. And so there's a relationship there. And let me just point out, when God favors her by giving her a son, that is Jacob's son. This isn't a miraculous virgin birth we're talking about, okay? Their relationship is consummated. Their relationship is ongoing. The issue, though, and I think this this is why it's most helpful, is that comparatively, Leah has nothing on Rachel. Rachel is his favorite wife. And of course, sometimes, as you can imagine, that feels like hatred. It has to. If the choices are A or B and you choose A, A looks like love and B looks like hatred. It's just the nature of a binary comparison. Okay? Now, like I said, that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not asking us to be bad children or bad spouses. He's not asking us to forsake our families or to walk away. In fact, Paul the Apostle goes on and basically makes clear that a Christian ethic, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, means to love your spouse. Means, in fact, Paul says interestingly about your children, he says anyone who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And so comparatively then, taking care of your family, that is is part of the Christian ethic. He says about parents, he says we, 
quoting out of the Ten Commandments, should honor our father, father and mother. He says this in the book of Ephesians. Okay, so the idea here is not, not that we should become bad children or bad spouses or bad parents or bad siblings, that we should become hostile. Uh, it, it's nothing like that. But the reality is nonetheless the same. It's a, it's a binary choice. And so effectively what he's saying here is anyone's going to be my disciple, anyone's going to follow me, I am going to be first in your life. Okay? So Jesus isn't open to joint custody with your parents. He's not interested in an open marriage relationship with your spouse. Right? The idea that he's expressing here is one of when the either-ors are happening, you always choose me. And if that's not a possibility, then you cannot be my disciple. To put it in slightly different terms, non-relational terms, clearly what Jesus is saying here is you can't just make me part of your life. I have to be your life. Now, just as a side note, Do you understand how profound and provocative these words are in an itinerant preacher in the first century Israel? You have to to open up and recognize this. You have to stand and understand the fact that when Jesus makes a claim like this, he's basically saying, I have to be first in your life. I have to be most important. I have to be the final you know, trump card in your decision-making process. I have to be the center of everything that you are. Now, if you just reduce Jesus down to a great example or a moral teacher or a rabbi of his day who had a special significant outpouring of that divine spark in the universe that just gave him wisdom into life, even if you see him as a good teacher, we have to recognize that this reads a lot more like megalomania right? It, it reads a lot more like these other things. If, if Jesus is just merely a man, then this demand is like, it's just unlike anything you'd allow in your life, okay? Take speed dating, for example. Imagine this is the conversation you have while the 60 seconds is ticking, and they say, I'm really interested in a relationship. I love dogs and cats, and if we're going to be together, then I have to come first before your family, before your kids, before anyone else in your life. I have to be the center of everything you are. If anyone was foolish enough to go, okay, that story ends with a knife chase, does it not? That story ends, I mean, that's psychopathic behavior. And without batting an eye, when everything's good, you know, this is, this is not some guy who everybody thinks is crazy talking to himself in a corner. This is at the height of his ministry. He turns around and he says, this is what it's going to take. And the reason when you look at Jesus' entire ministry is relatively clear. It's the reason why in John chapter 14, he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. There he doesn't say he's the way to life, a path to life, an example of life. There he doesn't say he'll be a part of your life, that he'll come to your soccer games. He says, I am the life, right? The reality is here, Jesus is recognizing and promoting himself to be the very God of the universe, the center aspect of everything we know, the creator of all that is. If that's not the case, then this demand doesn't really make any sense. But it still doesn't make it any easier, even if you recognize that. Because we would think, we would think, like Pam, if we believe in a God of love, 
wouldn't he make the bar for entry lower? If he really cares about us, wouldn't he settle for less? Wouldn't he take us every other weekend? Wouldn't he be willing to share us with the relationships that are most natural to us? Doesn't he recognize the demand that this creates? And I want you to recognize as well, before we start to kind of untangle that and deal with that, in the first century world, this, this, this is a passage with shoe leather. People in Jesus' day, and especially after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they recognize the reality of what Jesus means here. In the first century, if you were Jewish and you became a Christian, it was most likely that your parents were going to have a funeral for you. The whole procession, everything, and disown you. That was the end. Some scholars believe that Paul, when he became an apostle, his wife left him over following Jesus. Jesus says in another place, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword and it will divide husband and wife, father and child, brother and sister. He recognized and he always spoke frankly about the cost of choosing to follow him. And let's recognize tonight as well that that reality still exists in many countries of our day. If you're living in a country that is a Muslim country, following Jesus has direct and horrific consequences for your other relationships. So they know what this means. And suddenly the reality of this has kind of sprung on us. The, the issue is, are you going to obey your parents or God? Are you going to choose Jesus or your spouse? But like I said, knowing what's at stake doesn't make it any easier. I really don't want to explain this away tonight, but what I want you to recognize is like all the hard sayings of Jesus, there is more on the other side. There is, um, like I said, there is... Uh, understanding to be found on the other side of confusion. There is gentleness to be found on the other side of their har this harshness. There is a reason why Jesus makes this demand, and it's not just to weed out, you know, the wimpy second string possible Christians. It's, it's not just because he'll only take the most dedicated. Unfortunately, it's, it's more... It's more central than that. The issue is greater at stake than that. So Descartes comes along. He's a philosopher. Interestingly enough, he's employed by the church to finally and once and for all prove the existence of God. Descartes thinks to himself, well, I better start with what I know. I have to, I have to start with what I know for sure, and that's the only foundation you can begin with if you're going to climb all the way up to the ladder of the evidence of God. And that's when he has his great epiphany. E cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And what Descartes realized was that that's the one thing he could know for sure. Because if he's in the act of thinking, in some sense, he actually does exist. Now, unfortunately for Descartes and for the church and for our world as we know it, that's as far as he ever got. He was never able to get beyond step one, okay? Because he realized very quickly, even if I'm thinking and my thoughts are telling me that I see this other people in this other world, it may just be a dream. In fact, unfortunately for us as human beings, we know that experience. We know what a dream is. What, what I'm telling you is, 
there is no The Matrix in 1999 without Descartes centuries earlier, okay? That premise has been one that's haunted us ever since Descartes. But I want you to notice a second thing that that has done to our culture in the way that we think about human personality in general. It is said primarily, ultimately, centrally, definitively, we are rational beings. We think, therefore we are. That is our identity, okay? Now, there have been a couple of thinkers, um, all of the ones that I'm aware of, Christians, that have argued for a different foundation for an, for an identity. And the, the first one that I'd like to draw your attention to is Augustine. Okay? Augustine was a fourth century Christian. And he, he had a lens through viewing what is wrong with humanity through the lens of what humans actually are. And effectively, he said, humans are lovers. Not I think, therefore I am, I love, therefore I am. Or at the very least, if you're not comfortable with that assessment, I love, therefore I do. What he said was, the problem with human beings and any way to distinguish between right and wrong always comes down to what he called disordered loves. And so as he unpacks this idea, he says, doing the wrong thing in life, unrighteousness, wickedness, all of these things is either because you don't love something as much as you should, because you love something you shouldn't too much, because you love something more than something that should be above that, or vice versa. He said the problem, if you will, is an issue of hierarchy, that we take all sorts of good things in our life, but we move them up or down the scale to higher or lesser points of importance, and that disorder reaps chaos in our life. Now, we'll come back to Augustine in a second, but there was a much later thinker, Jonathan Edwards, who took this same approach. And so one of his most famous, longer pieces of literature uh, is called A Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. And he unpacks the same idea. He says, you do what you do because of your affections. And the word he's using there is much stronger than our modern word affection, which just means I'm attracted to. What he meant by affection is that piece that determines what you choose against something else, what you pursue against something else. When there's two things in your life, the strength of your affections determines which one you choose when there's a choice between them. And so he recognized that if that's really who we are, then ultimately everything that's wrong with humanity has to do with our affections. And the only way that humanity is going to be set right is going to be set right at that level. Now I'll add one more thinker before we go back to Jesus, and that's Jesus himself. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, and he basically teaches us what was meant by the Ten Commandments that God gave and the law that God gave Israel through Moses, consistently and continuously, he says, stop thinking about it as merely behavioral or attitudinal and understand that it begins in the heart. Constantly he was drawing back to that same place, which once again is more than just romance. In, in the Jewish idea, in the Greek idea, in the ancient idea, the heart is the seat of your affections, of your will, of everything that you are. If it can't be seen on the outside or cut and put in a box, that's your heart, okay? It's the inside you. But it all comes back to the same idea. Now, what I'm saying tonight is that Jesus knows this, recognizes this, and is directly challenging this reality, that when he's saying to prefer anyone against me, 
limits you from being my disciple, he's recognizing that the only place the good called Jesus or the good called God can go in these ordered loves is at the top. That's effectively what he's saying here. He's saying, if you're going to be in a relationship with me, it has to be the primary and sole relationship. If you're going to be in a loving relationship with God, then it will be the ultimate and total love. Okay? Now, in Pam's life, in the video we watched tonight, the problem is, and I want to be clear here, the problem is not a an overabundance of love. It's not that she loves Michael too much. The way that she treats him and the way that she elevates him is in actuality self-love, which is why we've entitled her the self-loving mother. She's defined herself based around Michael and um, Lewis is told later in the story that even at this moment, if that conversation is continuing, she might have come to the place where she'd say, fine, give me my son and I'll take him back to hell with me. Right? The reality being, I would rather he be with me in all of suffering for eternity than without me, without suffering, without pain. The reality is, we all know this. We've all experienced it. We've all encountered this. And the reason, I think, is relatively simple. If you imagine your life and the loves ordered in your life, you will order them in one way, and that means one of them will be at the top. Okay. Now, when Augustine, as well as Edwards, were talking about this, he was talking about a whole lot more than relationships. You could, your affections could lead you to an utter and complete devotion to food or some of the baser realities of life, good things that become ultimate things and very quickly destroy your life. The problem is, the problem is relationships, especially the close ones, sibling, parent and child, husband and wife, those ones are so tremendously good, they're also tremendously dangerous if put in the wrong place. C.S. Lewis later in The Great Divorce points out that there's not yet been a religion based on food. But he says how many nations, because of nationalism, a love for their own countrymen, have committed atrocities in war, right? The reality he points to, he says, look, it's not flies and mice that become demons, it's angels. And so in the same way, the scariness of this reality is that when we take something that's already high and we misorder it and we treat it like something else, it doesn't just have, you know, kind of like a cherry bomb mild consequence. It has drastic results, And like I said, I think we've experienced how this plays out. And I'd first like to illustrate with things that aren't relational, okay? When you get in an argument with somebody who fills one of these roles, spouse, sibling, father, whatever it is, whatever it is, these are the closest things. There's a part of you that knows deep down, truly and fully, that this is way more important than what you're arguing about, okay? Let's take hobbies for an example, there are going to be occasions where you are going to argue about hobbies with your spouse, okay? And sooner or later, the words coming out of your mouth are going to betray that at this point in time, the hobby's more important. And if you have to choose, right now, you want to choose the hobby. 
Now, I just want you to recognize that there hasn't been an occasion even in, you know, indulgent American history where somebody has proposed to their golf clubs, right? We, we never give vows to, to our, our library. We never dedicate all we are to that, but we totally know what it's like when those things, at least temporarily and momentarily, get bumped up the order and become more important than people, become more important than the people that we love. What I'm telling you here is the distance between those two things is comparable to the distance between the God of the universe and the people we encounter in our own lives, and it's a double-edged danger. One side is because it's very possible to convince ourselves you can center your life on a good, loving relationship, parent and child. Pam says a mother's love is the highest and holiest there is offered in life. And the reason we can do that is because it is tremendously high. And there is a lot of it that inherently and deeply reflects who God is. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible God chooses to uh, reveal himself and the relationship he desires and the relationship he has with his people in these terms? As father, as husband, even as sibling. All of these relationships God is constantly pointing to himself with. But see, here's the thing. If it's true, as I said, that you will love something ultimately, that you will make something most important, it doesn't matter if you change that as often as you change your wardrobe. Something, even if it's just on Wednesdays, will be in that place. Second, if you put a person in that place, two things are profoundly and quickly true. One, you will crush them with your expectations. What I'm saying is this, that you will expect so much from them in in the existential reality of giving you significance, of affirming who you are, of protecting you in security, of, of making you feel fulfilled and satisfied and all of these things, that those standards will begin to cripple them. And then directly related to that too, it will break your heart. It will not satisfy you. This is sometimes easier to see when we're aspiring for relationships, right? We think, this, this, is, this, is the, this is the center. All I've ever wanted is to be a mom. All I've ever wanted is the spouse and the white picket fence. And the reality is most of us, if we have it, start to realize, oh, it was a horizon. I'm pushing for the horizon. Now I look up and the horizon's just gotten off ahead of me. It's like, you know, the rainbow that you're chasing. It just keeps moving with you. The scary thing is, though, we're tremendously good at having that kind of existential crisis of that uh, illusion being shattered and being convinced that if we just try a little harder, if we just push a little harder, we can make it happen here. And so what happens instead of going, Maybe this is all pointing to something, but not the fulfillment itself. Maybe this is just a sign saying L.A. 2,000 miles away and not L.A. itself. Instead of doing that, we most often go, I'm going to build L.A. brick by brick if I have to. And like I said, the two things that start to happen then is that that relationship starts to break down because it's out of order. The reality is nobody is worthy of being God in your life. And if you try and make them such, like I said, the the weight will crush them, and by nature, because they're not God, they will disappoint you. It's even worse when there's a feedback loop of two people trying to do the same thing. 
But when Jesus says this, he recognizes and inherently understands that the only way for you to find that big gaping hole fulfilled is in the proper ordered loves of with God at the top. It's not going to work any other way. And here's the thing that I want to impress upon you that's not here in this text. The reality is, if you do that, if you put God at the top, if you reorder your loves in such a way at the level they're supposed to be, inherently, it doesn't make you a worse lover. It doesn't make you a worse child or a worse parent. Inherently, it makes you a better one. Listen, recognizing that, uh, that Jesus stands against the empires of this world and the nations of this world and calls you to be a citizen of the kingdom of God doesn't make you a worse citizen. It makes you a better one. But the renouncing of that citizenship has to be part of the step. It has to be where you begin. And I guess it's possible, even with what I just said, to make the same mistake of Pan, make God a means to an end. And go, okay, well then God, fix my marriage, right? We can be so swift to do those things, but the only way to really do it is to really do it. To realign the thing. To set it at the top. And this is something that makes very simple sense when you understand the reality of what we're talking about with the affections. What I'm saying here is that you have desire because God built you with desire and ultimately, fully and finally, he built you with that desire because he is desirable. He gave you the hunger for himself. That's what I'm saying. And so what Jesus is saying here is accept no substitutes. If you're going to come and feast on God, if you're going to taste and see that the Lord is good, you actually have to eat. And not just sample as well as your other things. You have to reorder the whole deal. You have to set it up differently. And the reality is, very simply put, that if the gospel is true, if Jesus' invitation is accurately followed, if everything that God has done in Jesus Christ is real and available to us, experiencing it will do two things. It'll make you need others less and love them more. I'll give you an illustration of this from the life of Paul. When Paul encounters Jesus, the transition that his life goes through in one week can't be overstated. He goes from somebody who's persecuting Christians to being a persecuted Christian. He goes from being the one who's aligned with the authorities, with the paperwork in hand, to put these things in his place to the one being put in prison. He goes from being a person of relative comfort, ease, and respect to being the scum of the earth, as he refers to himself, and all of the dangers and difficulties that go along. Now, what's intriguing to me is, kind of like we saw last week, that's not just a change of the rules, it's a change of the game entirely. Because when Paul is explaining the gospel to the church in Rome, and he gets to chapter 8, he says, I'm thoroughly convinced that all of the things that he's relatively acquainted with, persecution, sword, famine, death, life, powers, principalities on earth and in heaven, he says, I am thoroughly convinced that none of them can separate me from the love of God. Right? He says, he says I have what they can't take from me. 
And so he's willing to risk everything else, to be on the wrong side of these things, to experience all of these other things because he knows they no longer put at risk the one thing he's always been looking for. And the reality is this is why Christianity can call the Christian to love their enemy and actually expect it. Because it is possible to love the hostile if, if you don't need the hostile to validate you. If you don't need the enemy to make peace with you so that your world is at peace. What I'm saying to us tonight is that Jesus isn't just saying this is the way it is because I'm God and I deserve it. He's saying this is the way it is because I'm God and I'm what you're looking for. And that doesn't just play out into satisfaction and peace and righteousness and joy. It also inherently and directly turns into right loving and right living in those relationships. How can this be the case? Recognize tonight that every relationship you have, both the ones you choose and the ones you don't choose, right? The ones you were born into and the ones that you pursue on your own is inherently risky, right? Even in getting to know someone, go back to the speed dating scenario. Even in that fact, if you really want to know a person and to experience the benefit of being known, you have to kind of step out and take a risk. And the danger of being vulnerable with somebody is it makes you vulnerable, right? That's by definition what it means, But the reality of who God is, I would say tonight, even though this looks like a risky scenario, right? It's an ultimatum of sorts. It's a line in the sand. It's either or. It's in one sense, forsaking all others. Will you find all of your identity, all of your satisfaction, and the important things of life in me and me alone? I would say that there's a surprisingly good reason to do so. And it's summed up in two parts. First off, God knows what it's like to have a bad wife or disobedient children. Right? As we look throughout Scripture, we see this heart. And unfortunately, and every time this relationship is utilized, we're the one not keeping up our end of the bargain. And God remains faithful even when we are faithless. And so he knows all of these things, and yet here is Jesus, and this is not just something he says in the middle of his ministry, but he comes and he does this ministry, and it's all moving towards, and it's all culminating to something. Now let me add just one more kink in the pipeline that we have to address. We've only been talking about relationship and what we're looking for in life. We haven't talked about what I think is the hardest statement that Reginald makes to Pam in that video when he says, God took your son intentionally. In the book, he goes on and he says, it's a form of surgery. Drastic measures must be taken. Later on, he says, any love that lives in heaven must first die so that it can be resurrected. It's all coming down to this thing. But that type of loss, the loss of a family member, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, even the loss of a parent, which most of us, most of us will experience that one, it's so hard. It's so hard to understand. When I, was, um, when I was in high school, a schoolmate of mine who had just gone on to college, so I guess it was a year after high school, was attending university, met her fiancé, got engaged, and they were driving home to introduce her 
family to her soon-to-be husband. He fell asleep at the wheel. He rolled the car. He lived, and she did not. And I remember sitting in that funeral, and I remember looking around, and the funeral in of, its, of itself was sad, but her mom wasn't there. And I found out that this has been such a terrible struggle for her mom that the day before, she had taken everything Rose owned out of her bedroom and dumped it on the front lawn. She was literally too distraught to mourn publicly. And so she didn't come to her daughter's own memorial service, her own funeral. And I've seen that. And I remember even as a Christian, just about a year later, sitting down with my pastor in his office, this guy was a tough guy, ex-military, you know, had, had motorcycles on and off. Um, I had never seen anything move him. He was just a rock in my life. And he was clearly, clearly emotionally compromised. And I just said, what's wrong? And he took off his glasses and he looked me in the eye and he said, there's a young man in our church with a wife and a, chi and a child under two and a baby on the way and he was in a skiing accident yesterday and he died. And they've asked me to do the memorial. And I'm trying to figure out what to say. And this was a guy who loved Jesus, who was pursuing ministry and planting a church, you know, and, and then he's like, and, and what do I do with this? I think, you know, I'm, I'm telling you these realities not just to say that I can relate, but to say that we can relate. We've been there. We've seen these things. And, and the reality is the, the sayings of Lewis in the book and even, even the great promises of Scripture are never going to make that easier to understand. But I want to remind you tonight that God knows what it's like to watch a child die. That Pam isn't the only one to lose a son. And that that is something that God brought on himself. And that he brought it on himself on our behalf. That everything it is that we're so afraid of, that the things that make family so important, and I'll be honest, I realized a while ago that one of the reasons I have a bunch of kids is, is because now I have friends. I, I, I'm, I'm just being totally honest. I didn't understand this about myself, but the reason why I wanted a family so bad was because it's a lot harder to leave town. You know, it's a lot harder to be left, is what I mean, when it's family. It was like I just created a safe little space for myself. So I understand this. I get this. But the thing about God is, not only has he demonstrated throughout the history of Israel, all you have to do is read the Bible, that he's in it for the long haul, and that the bad one in this relationship with is, is us, but he took on all of those things that we're so afraid of, rejection, being despised, being misunderstood, being betrayed, he took on the cost of all of these things and willingly bore it for you. Undeserved you. Bad spouse you. Wayward child you. We'll see if I can connect the dots on this, but there was another preacher who famously talked about the affections. His name was Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers was a guy like me. He had a small church, and for years, according to his own journals, he just beat verbally his church every week, called them out and criticized them, and couldn't figure out why they couldn't just be a better 
church, why they couldn't just be better Christians, why they couldn't just be more obedient. And then one day he had what he called a profound encounter with divine grace. In other words, the reality of all the things the Bible says suddenly became personally real to him, and he understood it. In the very first sermon he preached after that, he called the expulsive power of a new affection. And the premise was simply put in these terms, that we do wrong because we love wrongly. And no amount of trying to change what you do apart from what you love is ever going to fix that. But he said, when you love something more, your actions follow. That's why he called it an expulsive power. The idea, simply put, is there might be things, even in basic hygiene, that you will not do unless you're in relationship with somebody who it matters for. Right? That's the simplest illustration I can think of. Um, but things that we see as burdensome become no burden at all when we do it on behalf of love. But the reality is, even when we do awful things, even when we don't take care of ourselves, it's always because we love something, whether it's our freedom or our comfort or these types of things. But I want you to recognize that that premise is the same here. If you even start from the premise that you'd like to be a better spouse or a better child or a better parent, and you recognize you constantly get derailed in that, there's a reason for that. It's because the thing that you love most is you, and you constantly get in the way of that. And like Pam, we find ourselves in the most intimate of moments, in the most heated emotional times, betraying our self-interest, grasping and, and seeking to hold on to and secure and keep even at great cost to them and great benefit to us and calling it love. But the gospel of God is built on the premise that an act of love like God has done in Jesus Christ changes things. And all of Jesus' ministry is built on this premise that it's a little bit like looking through opaque glass from the outside. I don't know, apart from these truths I know to be true in the gospel, how to understand a passage like this or any of the other hard sayings of Jesus. But the value of them is they get us to see the distance they get us to see the depth of the problem. They make us take a hard look at the issue and where we would prefer the band-aid of our own wisdom or you know, just a little bit of penance or some way to deal with the problem. God says, no, it goes deeper than that. It goes all the way to the root and the only way to bear better fruit is to uproot the tree itself, to start again. And at the same time, even though what it calls for, like I said, is, is effectively an existential, drastic crisis and uprooting this act doesn't just make it a possible choice or something that you should weigh it makes it the obvious choice and the ones who turn the corner like Paul and those of us who have followed Jesus for a while we've already recognized these things and just this idea of the fact that when when you understand who Jesus is and when you put God at the top and you love him because he's lovely and you delight in him because he's delightful there are parts of your life that change without you even thinking about it it was after that that I started telling my parents when I would be home and they're like you're 19 you don't have to do that and I said I know 
It was after that that this love triangle that I was uh, saved through, because many of you know I chased a girl into a church. You may not know that so did my best friend, and it caused just total chaos for three months. But when I surrendered my life to Jesus, it changed the way I saw both of them, and I was no longer grasping to maintain, by the way, a relationship that I did not have. Okay? I was treating this girl as if she belonged to me when we were not in a relationship. But that changed completely, and I had all of this freedom. And to be honest, I didn't know where it come from. It would be that type of thing where it'd be like watching myself act as if it's an out-of-body experience and going, why am I behaving this way? And I think many of us who have known the Lord, who have, who have taken these big and drastic steps, have had these same experiences. All I'm saying is, you know what it's like when God is God. And you are merely his creation. You know what it's like where the God of love has made you his beloved and you know it. You've tasted this on occasion. And that doesn't mean that we can't rearrange the pyramid of our affections. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes put other things and elevate those things in those places. It clearly doesn't mean that Christians have no sort of conflict in their relationships with their family. But we know what the solution is. Even when it seems completely opposite. Effectively, Jesus calls us to die, but he calls us as the one who died on our behalf. And that changes the call because, if you will, we know the end of the story. And the cross is horrible, and it's despicable, and it's awful, and it's shameful, And three days later, it's life, and it's power, and it's beauty, and it's strength, and it's salvation itself. Let's pray. God, the thing that I'm most afraid of is is us explaining away such hard sayings when there really is no detour around this. Unless we're willing to let God be God, to reorder our life, to make it the most important, definitive, and final relationship, we cannot, we cannot enter in. We cannot be your disciple. We cannot follow you. But like all of your sayings, that's just trying to wake us up to the reality that we live in and offer us something that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. I pray that you'd teach us, like Paul, that all of these things that we enjoy and take for granted, that all of these things that we pursue and cannot find, the, all, of the, all these things that we deceive ourselves into thinking we have, that in Jesus Christ we have them so profoundly that nothing, nothing in life can take them away ever again. And I pray that that would make us aflame in love for others, Lord. That you would truly make us need others less and love them more. We ask this in your name. Amen.